morning, I will be preaching a Unitarian Universalist version of fire and brimstone. <laughs> and hopefully I will be your metaphorical Greek chorus. Today, as Unitarian Universalists, we consciously choose to side with love and to quote from the Unitarian Universalist Association, to side with love is an invitation and a challenge. It is an opportunity to firmly name what we are for and against, to recognize that as we seek to embody universalism, we commit to resisting oppression. Side with love raises provocative spiritual questions, including, when have I sided with love? When have I shirked siding with love? When have I chosen the side of comfort, apathy, despair, and acquiescence instead of the side of faith, risk, sacrifice, and resistance. Wow, that's a big, big thing to take on. We've heard a lot about divisiveness in our country for the past 70 years, and I, for one, am trying to avoid entering the abyss, the black hole of energy that can consume one's spirit if we allow it. Many of us feel exhausted by the rhetoric of hate that we hear almost every day. Let's explore the word hate for a moment. The etymology of the word hate is from the Old English, het, H-E-T-E, meaning hatred, spite, envy, malice, hostility, extreme dislike. If we break it down, we've all experienced some version of hate or extreme dislike. But what motivates one to hate? Oftentimes, fear is the underpinning of hate. Fear of the stranger, the other. Fear that something is being taken away from us. It can be primal or existential fear that fuels our fight or flight response. Most of the world, religions, and spiritual principles provide an ethical framework to help tame the basis of our proclivities. We might even ask ourselves if it is a cop-out to hate, is it easier to just give way to that amygdala portion of our human brains that just reacts and goes on gut response? Confucius said that it is easy to hate and it is difficult to love. But Martin Luther King Jr. and the Buddha remind us that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In order to truly side with love, my spirit has been awakened and activated by the ugliness we've all witnessed lately in what is becoming our fragile democracy. I'm on a journey right now, like many of you, that questions how it can be that many Americans have enabled powerful people to do the following. One, to confuse leadership with ultimate authority and demands for loyalty and the belief that the president is above the law. And to be so willing to believe that the ends justify the means at the risk of sacrificing our very democratic institutions. Two, to encourage a platform for hate speech that divides and pits neighbors against one another. Three, to celebrate unprecedented, bold-faced lines
and to attack legitimate news outlets by calling their reporting fake news, which is a tactic dictators use to suppress the truth. Four, to confuse authenticity with being blatant about one's racism, misogyny, sexual harassment, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and anti-immigrant feelings. This done all in the name of priding oneself on being a rule breaker. And five, to make light of nuclear war. The list goes on. All of this is so disturbing that we might just want to hibernate inside a cozy, firelit room until it all goes away. Found appealing? Well, not so fast. I, for one, can no longer be silent, since in silence I am complicit. Every time I might be a witness to a racial or ethnic joke or slight and I don't speak out, I'm complicit. Every time I think my vote doesn't really matter, and so I don't vote, or I don't fight to reverse gerrymandering and eliminate Citizens United, <laughs> I'm complicit. Each time I think that someone else will step up to do the hard work of standing up for basic human rights, I'm complicit. I'm so proud of the work that many of us do in our congregation feeding our homeless neighbors, supporting charitable organizations that fight for environmental, civil, and human rights, marching in the streets for women's rights, LGBTQ rights, Black Lives Matter, or for our very own democracy. The list goes on. Showing up to city council meetings to help make change a reality for tenants' protections in Marin, fighting for affordable housing in Marin, willingness to be witnesses to illegal actions by ICE, such as asking our Latino neighbors to sh show IDs without a search warrant, to forming small resistance groups to encourage each other to write letters and call our representatives in Congress to fight for our democracy. These are just a sampling of the good work that is ongoing among us. We need every one of you to join in with the social justice work we are doing locally in order to have an impact globally. We can take a breath and take care of ourselves, but we can't afford to remain silent. Growing up as a young Jewish girl, I heard stories from my grandmother who was an immigrant from Romania. One story that has stayed with me is how she had to leave Romania at the tender age of 19 and say farewell to her father, knowing that she'd never see him again. Jews were a target of religious persecution and racism in Romanian society from the late 19th century debate over the Jewish question and the Jewish residents' right to citizenship, and then later to the genocide carried out in the lands of Romania as part of the Holocaust. Some of my grandmother's family were already in the U.S. and had sent money so that she could afford to take a ship to America. Romania was no longer safe for Jews in 1915, and many people were leaving while they could still escape. How brave and courageous it must have been for her to leave her tight-knit family and journey so far from home. I was reminded by my Jewish education that it was never up to the Jews and others to keep it, I'm sorry, that it was up to the Jews and others to keep the 
memory of the Holocaust alive so that the vow of never again would be upheld. Today I'm keeping that promise by reading an excerpt from Elie Wiesel's Night and uplifting the idea that we cannot afford to be in denial. They called him Moshe the Beatle, as though he had never had a surname in his life. He was a man of all work at a Hasidic synagogue, the Jews of Siget, the little town in Transylvania where I spent my childhood, were very fond of him. He was very poor and lived humbly. Generally, my fellow townspeople, though they would help the poor, were not particularly fond of them. Moshe the Beetle was the exception. Nobody ever felt embarrassed by him. Nobody ever felt encumbered by his presence. He was a past master in the art of making himself insignificant, even invisible. Then one day, they expelled all the foreign Jews from Ziget, and Moshe the Beetle was a foreigner. Crammed into cattle trains by Hungarian police, they wept bitterly. We stood on the platform and wept too. The train disappeared on the horizon. It left nothing behind but its thick, dirty smoke. I heard a Jew behind me heave a sigh. What can we expect, he said. It's war. The deportees were soon forgotten. A few days after they had gone, people were saying that they had arrived in Galicia, were working there, and were even satisfied with their lot. Several days passed, several weeks, several months. Life had returned to normal. One day I was just going into the synagogue. I saw sitting on the bench near the door Moshe the Beetle. He told his story and that of his companions. The train full of deportees had crossed the Hungarian frontier and on the Polish territory had been taken in charge by the Gestapo. There it had stopped. The Jews had to get out and climb into lorries. The lorries drove it toward a forest. The Jews were made to get out. They were made to dig huge graves. And when they had finished their work, the Gestapo began theirs. Without passion, without haste, they slaughtered their prisoners. How had Moshe the Beetle escaped? Miraculously. He was wounded in the leg and then taken for dead. Through long days and nights, he went from one Jewish house to another, telling the story of Malka, the young girl who had taken three days to die, and other stories. And as for Moshe, he wept. Jews, listen to me. It's all I ask of you. I don't want money or pity. Only listen to me, he would cry between prayers of dust and moving prayers. I do not believe in myself. I would often sit with him in the evening after the service, listening to his stories and trying my hardest to understand his grief. I felt only pity for him. They take me for a madman, he would whisper, and tears like drops of wax flowed from his eyes. Once I asked him this question, why are you so anxious that people should believe what you say? In, in your place, I shouldn't care whether they believe me or not. He closed his eyes as though to escape time. You don't understand, he said in despair. You can't understand. I have been saved miraculously. I managed to get back here. Where did I get the strength from? I wanted to come back to Seget to tell you the story of my death so that you could prepare yourselves while there was still time. To live? I don't attach my importance to my life anymore. I'm alone. No, I wanted to come back to warn you and see how it is. No one will listen. 
We pray that our good people of America would never allow a nightmare like the Holocaust to unfold again. But when the chant in Charlottesville of Jews will not replace us rang out with 2,000 torch-carrying white supremacists, neo-Nazis and KKK, and such activities were not resoundingly renounced by our president, I, for one, was struck with disbelief, disgust, and fear. Not only it is important to stay vigilant about what the president says and does, but more importantly, how others who support him remain complicit and enable anti-American agendas. Remember, Hitler could not act alone. As delicious as denial sometimes feels, we, as you use, have a history of speaking truth to power, and it is okay to be outraged. Outrage is a galvanizer, and anger is a motivator. We are witnessing a moment in our history when many of us are feeling compelled to speak out against the amorality and degradation of our public discourse and of our democratic principles, which we, as you use, hold so dear. And let me remind you of our fifth and sixth UU principles. The fifth is the belief in the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. And the sixth, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Indifference and cynicism are the enemy of siding with love. Outrage is the opposite of becoming inured or desensitized to the unprecedented norm-breaking that is occurring now in our democracy. You've probably all heard about the boiling frog, but I'll remind you again. If you toss a frog into boiling water, it will jump out. <laughs> but if you place the frog in the water and very gradually raise the heat to boiling, it will adjust to the temperature and boil to death. We can't afford to become inured to the daily lies and hate we hear. Siding with love is an action we can take by starting right here with each other and within our local communities. Everyone in this room today is being called to action for social justice. Starts with one small step as the hymn sings, and it starts right here in Marin. There's a new movement in our county called Love Lives in Marin, and you may be seeing these flyers in the foyer. There's a rally, it's Love Lives in Marin, um, and please talk to me afterwards. It's going to be this Wednesday, February 14th, down in Mill Valley. Um, we cannot combat racism, homelessness, lack of affordable housing, immigrants' rights, and care for the environment all alone. We have a special opportunity right now to show our love and what unites us as Americans, aside from shopping and football games. What unites us are simple things that we've often taken for granted. Our common decency, kindness, and caring for each other. Our embrace of diversity in the ways we do welcome the stranger. And as we remember that we are all immigrants, our willingness to promote the common good and the belief that truth will win out. These are the elements that save us from becoming prey to dictatorial rule. Historically, change can happen seemingly overnight. Who remembers the fall of the Berlin Wall? Yeah? 
or when Ellen DeGeneres came out on TV and opened a whole conversation about being gay in America. Yeah? <laughs> or when our gay friends were finally allowed to marry. Or when the first African American became a president. Or most recently, when sexual harassment and assault and domestic abuse are finally being openly challenged and discussed. The groundwork for such change is many years in the making, and then often a catalytic event opens everything. The negative rhetoric we hear in our public discourse is the catalyst for change right now. It is galvanizing young and old, black and white, gay and straight, Muslim and Jew, and on and on. So I will ask you again, when have I chosen the side of comfort, apathy, despair, and acquiescence instead of the side of faith, risk, sacrifice, and resistance. We cannot afford to lose hope, and in order to do so, let us decide to side with love. May it be so.